So we got kind of a, a different day today. I'm really excited about it. And in, in just a few moments, we're going to have um, some stories. And I don't know about you, but I love a good story. I am a storyteller. I'm a story reader. I love a good story. You have good characters. You have conflict. You have someone overcoming conflict. And I'm in. I want to know what's going on. And so we're going to hear some amazing stories today. As we do, though, we're in this series on parables. And the idea is that a parable is something, if you think about like a parallel line, those are two lines that are going in the same direction. A parable is like a parallel story to a truth about God and the kingdom of God that Jesus shares in order for us to understand something about the kingdom of God. So today, if you have your Bibles, come to Luke chapter 10 with me, and I'm going to move a little bit quickly this morning and uh, dive into this incredible uh, story. Now listen, oftentimes the best stories happen because someone asked the right question. And I'm one of those guys, I get infuriated when someone wastes an opportunity to ask a good question and they ask a silly, ridiculous question. So like if I'm watching something like uh, live on the news and someone walks up to someone and, and this person is, uh, has some special insight into whatever it is, maybe they're a, a politician in authority, they're, they did, and, and someone walks up to them and says, so tell me what you're wearing. I lose my mind. I lose my mind. I could care less. Now, maybe you care about what they're wearing. I don't care what they're wearing. I want you have a moment to ask them a question. Get a good question in there. Ask them something that you have access to them. And oftentimes in the scriptures, we watch people come up to Jesus and ask him a question. And whenever I see someone ask a, a, a ridiculous question, I lose my mind. I'm like, this was your chance to ask a profound and amazing question. And you asked about taxes. Like, okay, well, that's probably helpful in some capacity, right? But you, you could have asked about anything, and you picked, you know, should we pay our taxes? Or, or you asked about, um, you know, oh, how, how Moses set up divorce and, and, and that stuff. And you're just like, ah, oh, come on. You got a moment with Jesus. Ask a good question. And I love this story because this guy asked a great question in Luke chapter 10. He asked the best question, the question I would ask if I had a moment to go face-to-face -face with Jesus. Now, he may not have asked it for the perfect reason, but he asked the right question. And so I want to take us into this story. Um, in Luke chapter 10, a few things are happening. And so I'll give you a little context. One is Jesus has just recently uh, sent off a group of his disciples, 72 of them. And they've partnered up and they've gone into the surrounding areas and towns. And they've begun to move with the same authority in their lives that Jesus demonstrated. Now, this is really powerful because up until this point, we don't see these guys being ambassadors of Jesus like this. They're followers, but now they're praying and things are happening. And they come back and they report and they're like, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. This is amazing. There's like this high water, exciting moment. And this momentum is being generated because people are doing what Jesus told them they can do. Things have changed. And in the midst of that, a lawyer walks up to Jesus. Now, it sounds like the beginning of a bad joke. There's a lawyer and, no, right? Two other guys, whatever stereotypes you want, they walk up to Jesus and ask, no. But it, it literally happens. A lawyer, a legal mind, a professional in the law walks up to Jesus. Now, I was thinking about what it must have meant to be a professional uh, in the religious law at that time. They had taken the Old Testament and the Ten Commandments that we all know about, and essentially the writings of Moses, and said, we can kind of, out of this context, we can, you know, there's ten rules in here, but we think we can get it narrowed down even tighter than that. We're going to actually narrow it down to about 613 rules. Now, I don't know about you, but trying to learn 613 anything would be a challenge. However, you got to remember at this time, the singularity of focus that they're able to demonstrate is amazing. Essentially, you were born into a class to do this one thing, learn, study the law, and become an authority on that law. That's what you do. So you don't have the kind of distractions that we have today. You're not distracted flipping channels. You're flipping pages in the law. You're not checking your Facebook. You're checking your law book, right? You are basically, with a singularity of mind, compelled almost to study this law. This guy is an expert in a way we couldn't ever probably even comprehend. This is what he does with his life. And he sees that these folks have been doing what Jesus did, and his mind is like processing. 
something's happening here. So it says he walks up to Jesus. I'm going to pick up in Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And it says, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up, and it says, to test Jesus. Now, we have the power of hindsight and know how ridiculous it is to imply that I'm going to walk up and test Jesus. Like, it never is going to go well. But this guy's sharp. And he doesn't have that hindsight. And so he's trying, again, we've been talking about this. Jesus is potentially a political revolutionary. And they got to get him on the record saying something that violates the law so that they can discredit him and stop the momentum of this crazy Jesus movement that's affecting and changing culture. So they're trying to test him. It says he stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked. Starts with some respect. And here's the question, the million-dollar question. What? must I do to inherit eternal life? That's a good question. Hey, this whole thing is pointing somewhere towards heaven, towards eternity with God. So when you look at me, what do you expect me to do to be on team go to heaven? I need some fire insurance. I want to know that I'm in, right? That's a phenomenal place to start a question. So Jesus, being Jesus, answers brilliantly a question with a question. Don't you hate it when someone answers a question with a question? <laughs> exactly, right? It's called the Socratic method. It's just, you know, it's just nasty. It's tricky and it's wise, though. So Jesus is like, really? He knows he's an expert. What's written in the law? This guy's entire life is about what's written in the law, okay? So he has to answer this question. He can't come back with, what do you think's written in the law? If he doesn't answer it, he has basically unvalidated his lifetime efforts of research. Jesus says, what's written in the law? How do you read it? He says, he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, we have heard these two phrases mashed up together our whole lives. Up until this point, these phrases weren't mashed together like this. This is an expert of the law taking two passages from two separate books and mashing them together. This is a brilliant answer. I told you this guy's mind is sharp. So if you, if you look, I'm actually going to jump us ahead here. Um, Deuteronomy 6.5. I think I'll throw it up there on the screen for you. You don't have to jump with me. Deuteronomy 6.5 says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And then Leviticus 19.18 says, do not seek revenge or bear grudge on, your, on your, one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I'm the Lord. He literally goes to two different places in the scripture. He mashes them together in order to bookend all of the 613 laws that he's trying to live by. This is brilliant lawyering. In fact, it's so brilliant that Jesus, when he interacts with the rich young ruler later, is going to use this exact answer to depict that the entire law is hung on these two principles, loving God with everything you got and loving your neighbor as yourself. With that said, that's a brilliant job lawyering. So Jesus responds and says, hey, you've actually answered correctly. Well done. Psh, high five. Again, brilliant. He says, now go and do it. Now go and do it. Do this and you'll live. He says, if you can do this, if you can pull this off, if you can love God perfectly with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you could love your neighbor perfectly just as yourself, you don't need any help from me. Go do that and you'll be fine. Well, as any good lawyer would, he presses in that a little bit. He's like, whoa, 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 time out. It's one thing to state the answer. It's another thing to do the answer. So I'm going to need a little clarification. Who exactly do you want me to love as my neighbor? This is where his asking of questions starts to fall down. He starts brilliantly. He asks the right question. He says, what do I got to do to get to heaven? His next question, not so good. Who do you want me to love? He could have said, how do I do it? How do I do it would have been a brilliant follow-up question. How, Jesus, do I do it? Because that would have invited a conversation about the reality that we can't do that perfectly on our own. Didn't go there. Instead, he said, who? Now, this is why this is really profound. Because Jesus is about to tell an incredible story 
that breaks all of our expectations about how we should treat people that God loves. See, I think sometimes the real, real tension for us is we want to narrow the focus of who we're called to serve and to love into things that we can manage. And Jesus rips it open and says, this is going to get unmanageable. I love that tension. So in just a few moments, I'm going to share kind of the rest of this story. But here's what I want you to see. Even though it feels unmanageable, we have people in this room today who are finding ways to live this out. How do we love whoever it is God's put right in front of us? Is it easy? Almost never. Does it cost us something? Basically always. Is it possible? Not alone, but with Jesus. So Pastor Andrew's going to come. We're going to share some stories, and we'll jump back into the parable. Thanks, Pastor Mike. Um, when we were talking in our staff meeting about how we wanted to present this parable, uh, we were giving various options. And I was remembering when we went through a season where we had a bunch of video testimonies. Some of you who are here, it was like a year or two years ago, we had some video testimonies. Those were really inspiring, right? There's something that is really inspiring about hearing people's stories. So we decided the best way to intro this was just to start by hearing some stories about how people in our own congregation are practicing loving their neighbor. So I'm going to bring up a few different people to share with you. I'm going to start with Lindsay and Marshall. Um, would you welcome them as they come up? You've heard a little bit from them in the past. They're going to share a little more. But we're going to start with in our own families and just in the area of family how we love our neighbor. Hey, I'm Lindsay. I'm Liz and Marshall. We've been married for about 13 years. And through birth, adoption, and foster care, we have nine kiddos. And only three of them are here with us today. The other six have moved on. But we have um, three beautiful kids, Avery, who's nine, Abby, who is eight, and Michael, who is five. Michael came to us through foster care as a seven-day-old baby. And about four years later, we were able to adopt him. We've been foster parents for about five years. And we're here today to tell you a little bit about our story. And we are licensed through a great agency called Youth for Christ. And this is Blair. Blair works for Youth for Christ. She's been a case manager there. And she has walked with us uh, for the last three years supporting us and uh, so much more. <laughs> And Blair's here to just to tell you a little bit about the crisis that we're facing in Pierce County with foster care. Hi, guys. It's good to be here with you this morning. Um, I'm honored that Marshall and Lindsay asked me to come, and I just wanted to share a little bit about what the state of foster care looks like in Washington and specifically um, in Pierce County. So if we were to travel back five years ago, um, it would be a really different picture. Um, and there was about 6,000 licensed foster homes across the state, if you were to look today, there's about 4,800. And if we look at the trends, that number is going to keep decreasing. In the midst of that, we have the number of kids coming into care, needing homes, increasing. On any given day, there's about 11,000 across the state of Washington. So if we look at 4,800 homes and 11,000 children and that number increasing, where are these kids going? We have foster families that are being overwhelmed and needing support. We have kids that are moving across county lines, sometimes across state lines, just to find a safe home for one night. We have kids spending the night in hotel rooms with social workers and other staff because there's no place for them to go. And in the midst of this, in the midst of what we refer to as a placement crisis, I'm actually really excited because I feel like this is the opportunity for the church to step up and to be the support and to be to care for the widows and to care for the orphans like we're called to in scripture. And I'm so thankful um, for them who are going to share their testimony. This is, what, this is what living out the gospel looks like. So the need is great. And I just want to say that Blair is also a foster parent herself. So she, uh, she wins in both sides. <laughs> <laughs> so when I was thinking about what I wanted to say to you guys about foster care in order to maybe entice some of you to be foster parents yourselves, I thought maybe what rosy butterfly and rainbow picture can I paint? And, and then I just realized there just, there just isn't it. There isn't that rosy butterfly picture that we <laughs> would like. Um, 
But foster care begins in brokenness. It begins with broken people, broken families, broken parents, and through no fault of their own, sometimes broken kids. As a new foster mom, my focus and attention was all on the kids. I felt like they needed it most. I was kind to the parents, but honestly, I had anger and bitterness in my heart towards them. Um, but the kids, that was my focus. And they do need me. They need us, and they need some of you. Um, they need safe, stable homes, stable people. They need basic needs such as food and clothes and shelter met. They need Jesus, and they need people who can show him who they, show them who he is. They need loving families who can wrap their arms around them in all their imperfections and love them anyway, and show them what the love of a good, good father looks like. Because so often they have not even had an example of what a good dad is like. Somewhere in our second year of foster care, God changed my view. He shifted my view, and he showed me how beauty can come from ashes. He showed me just how amazingly wonderful it is to be a part of a story of redemption. Our God is a God of redemption and restoration, and we have all, every one of us in this room, have been re rescued and redeemed and restored from ourselves and our own sin. I began to see birth parents in a new light. I... God showed me just how broken they were, and instead of being angry at their poor choices, he began to break my heart for them. I began to reach out to birth parents. I began praying with them, encouraging them, bringing a meal, giving gifts at holidays, printing out pictures of their kids, and any other thing I could think of that would be helpful. God showed me that my ministry wasn't just to the kids in my home, but it was to their parents as well. The goal of foster care is always restoration of families, and I wanted to be a part of that bigger picture. So has this journey always been easy? No. <laughs> but God very clearly called Marshall and I to a lifelong ministry of foster care, and we simply just want to be obedient to that calling. So we keep saying yes. And I've come to terms with our lives not being normal anymore. Um, sometimes it's scary, but I'm more concerned about what I'd miss out on if I were disobedient. God's word says so much about obedience, and here's just a few verses. Jeremiah 7.23 says, Walk in obedience to all I have commanded you so that it may go well with you. And John, 2 John 1.6 tells us that love means doing what God has commanded us. Psalm 128.1 states that those who walk in obedience to him are blessed. And we have been blessed. We have truly been blessed by our obedience. And God has proven himself faithful and his word true time and time again. So friends, I urge you to take action and be obedient to whatever God is calling you to. Whether that's foster care or not, it may be scary. It, it will be scary. <laughs> but I know what he has planned for me and you is far greater, far, far greater than anything we could plan for ourselves. Um, and I think I wanted to add, um, often when, uh, when we think about parenting, kids, uh, foster care in general, uh, I think we, we see a lot more women, truthfully, when we talk about those things, and uh, men, dads, I want to especially speak to you guys, um, because I don't think we think about foster fathers or dads as much, and it's probably because it's heart issues, and we don't like to show that um, in general, I think, but this is uh, something that's, that's definitely changed my life. Um, it's challenged me more than I could imagine anything else. Um, because on top of being a dad, I, I'm also a bit of a control freak, and I also like to, uh, <laughs> yeah, and I like to uh, to not have change, or at least be able to predict change. And foster care is none of those things. Um, you know, I, I, even when the experts, the people that are in the system, tell you, you know, here's what this is likely going to look like, uh, they're not lying on purpose. That <laughs> they're just wrong, like all the time 
And so it's like they're not trying to trick you or anything. It's just like, oh, wow, well, this thing happened. That's weird. Um, so y you really have to kind of adapt and, ha and trust on God's grace and his provision to get you through that. And I think um, for me it's helped, um, you know, my upbringing was not in the church, um, I, you know, no, no vision of what a godly father was or anything. And these kids um, have no, generally, no view of that either. And for a man and a father to show a child, sorry, that they're loved, that they're special, that they have things to offer this world and that God delights in them and to see what it looks like for a father to delight in a child, it just stays with them their whole life. And um, one of the things that I think we hear about a lot as foster parents, I think all foster parents hear this, is, um, is that, you know, I could never do that. I would get too attached, right? And, um, and you do get attached, and you get too attached. And you have to go in there and say, my heart's going to be broken in I don't know how long. I don't know when it's going to come, but it's going to break. And I have to love this kid anyway. And um, because they deserve it. They deserve to be heartbroken over, right? They deserve to have a father and a mother who love them enough to weep when they're taken from them. And, um, and so I just, I say that, we're called, I think, as Christians to love in that way, to love with that strength, to love these kids that don't know what that feels like. Um, and as I was going through this, I was just remembering, I was reminded of a C.S. Lewis um, quote that I'm going to misquote, but get close enough, is that um, he wrote, the, the only, outside of heaven, the only place that's safe from the pains of love is hell. And so when you choose to love, you have to open yourself up for that. And so I would just say it's, it's worth it. It's hard. Um, but we do have, we, we do feel blessed by it. We've grown from it. And, um, and it's just an amazing answer to God's call, I think, on all of us. So dads in particular, um, it's a great call. It's difficult. But what a way, what a legacy you can set up for your family. Um, and then if you do have questions after service, we'll be in the North foyer, South foyer. <laughs> um, South foyer. South foyer, if you have questions or to talk about what that looks like. Thanks. Thank you, Marshall and Lindsay. And Blair, too, thank you so much for coming. One of the things that I really appreciate about Marshall and Lindsay, um, they're incredibly involved here, and yet they still make time for that. I just love you guys' hearts, so thank you guys. And it's, I like being your friends, too. So. Um, I'm now going to call up Zeke, Zeke Swanson. We talked about family. Now we're going to just talk about kind of the community in general. So Zeke, would you share with us a little bit about Freezing Nights? Zeke leads Freezing Nights with Patty Schneider here. Welcome, Zeke. Morning, guys. For those of you who I don't know yet, I'm Zeke. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit about the Freezing Nights ministry. Long story short, our church has been involved in it for about three years. The ministry itself is an organization of over a dozen other churches in the Puyallup area. This has been going on for over 10 years, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about it in what I have left, which is less than five minutes. <laughs> so I'm going to try to move fast and not lose it here because, like Marshall, like you're talking about, the heartbreak we experience when we love and we care is phenomenal. The constant comment at Freezing Nights is, as a volunteer, I want to make sure I'm here giving more than I get. And I have not met a single person who's been able to do that yet. God has met us in so many ways. I heard a fellow talking the other day about how, you know, law enforcement around the area doesn't like the program. It brings all these people in. Well, these people, like we were talking about earlier, are the other sons and daughters of God. They're my brothers and sisters. And I sat right there with Officer Grote from the Pierce County Sheriff's Department while he asked, what can we do to help you, to help Celebration Center, to help this building, this congregation as representatives of love of Jesus Christ to those who have not? How can we move this forward with you? See, we've got the community backing. I'd, most of you probably have internet 
radio, phone, TV. You've seen the news. City of Seattle, homeless camps, New Hope Resource Center. The climate's not good right now. But that's not actually all the folks. That is the vastly vocal minority. They don't have the most people, just the most volume. They have nothing to lose by going against God's standards. Obedience is key. We all know the verse. We love the verse. What you do unto the least of these, you've done unto me. Follow that down four more verses when you get home. If you didn't do for the least that you saw. The people in this ministry that I've dealt with, the guests as we call them, we have had nearly 900 of them here in this building. By nearly 900, I mean 891 to be exact. <laughs> I'm not exaggerating. They slept right here and right here, right here. They had no roof, they had no money. Some of them barely had clothes. There was a table that sat outside that door with socks, underwear, hygiene products, a couple of pairs of pants, a few coats. They loved it. They took from it. They thanked us. They saw the love of Jesus Christ acting in this room, in this building. We provide them a dinner. We provide them a breakfast. More than 1,600 meals were served in this building. By the way, we host on the first and third Mondays for five months. That's all. In that time, this congregation and volunteers provided more than $20,000 in value. But I don't care about that. We met people. We loved people. Dusty and Mina and their dog, they slept right about where Dan's sitting now. That was their spot. They got a home. I don't see them anymore. Breaks my heart, but I love them. A couple other people I don't see anymore because I went to their funerals. Because they're on the street, they're doing drugs, they're all alcohol, they wander to traffic, not a good combination. But I love them, I miss them. We meet them where they're at. But I've got one volunteer I want to tell you about, briefly. In the very beginning, he told me, he said, you know, I got a problem with organized religion. I said, so do I, I'm not very organized. <laughs> he said, no, there's a church down the road from my house. I can hear their sound system. Four doors down in my house. Five doors down is a gal who can't put food on her table. And she's not welcome there. I can't answer for that, man. Just come on in. Let's get the beds out. Let's get these people going. He loves serving people. He loves helping people. A couple weeks later, he's standing out in the parking lot looking at the freezing night's trailer. Writing a few things down. He's a very critical man. So what are we doing? So well, this is my new yardstick. How's that? Now I figure uh, somebody's name's on this. They can't be too bad of a church. I got a good heart. Well, you know, that's a pretty good starting spot. This guy who doesn't know Christ, who doesn't like religion, is actually writing church names down on a card and putting it in his pocket. A couple weeks later, he says, hey, Zeke, if I ask you a question, can you be real honest with me? <laughs> you know that. And he says, you know, there's this church, and he tells me what church it is. What do you know about them? They're not involved in freezing nights, but they're there in the area here. I don't know a whole lot. I know some of their programs, and I ask him why. And he says, because my son was asked to get involved with another fellow there in a youth ministry program. I don't know anything about God, religion. I don't know if I can really help my son. But I'm thinking maybe it'd be a good thing for him to get the chance to experience. Do you think that'd be a good idea, Zeke? That's just one. I have seen the members of this congregation telling me about how they prayed for the opportunity to serve, and God met them here. This has changed the lives of the homeless. This has changed the lives of the non-churchgoers. This has changed the lives in our congregation. Last year, the 2015 calendar year, the ministry-wide, 9,921 beds. Now, that's not individual people. Some of these people come back over and over and over again. Over 20, let's see, 9,000. I did the math on it. I do a lot of stats for it. It turned out to be over a quarter million dollars in value just in food that the churches gave to people who were hungry. You guys, this moves you. I don't know anybody who's been involved. 
and come back out the other end the same. It's scary, but you might want to try it. Thank you, Zeke. Zeke, one of the things I heard you saying um, was just about the opportunity to have conversations with the people. When I was in college, I helped out with a couple different homeless things, and I started out going to, I'm, I'm gonna help them, and I'm gonna give food, and those kinds of things, but what I learned is, as I was giving food, when I had a chance to just sit with them and talk to them and have a conversation, you realize this is a person, just like me, just like anyone else, and that changed me so much, just recognizing each person I come to, this is a person, and God loves them, and they're someone's son or daughter, and they're God's son or daughter, like you said, so thank you, Zeke. Um, lastly, this one will be fun, I'm gonna call up Tayshelle and Canyon um, to talk to you guys about an event that the youth just recently did called the 30-Hour Famine. So why don't you guys welcome Tayshelle and Canyon while they come up here. Um, so the 30-Hour Famine is an event that World Vision has done for years. And the purpose of this event is to identify with hunger around the world, particularly with children, to raise awareness for hunger, and also to raise resources to help children who are in a, a place of hunger. So um, let's start with you, Tayshelle. Can you just tell me a little bit about what we did at the 30-Hour Famine event? Um, well, we did a lot of like activities to learn more about what the kids go through and their disadvantages and a lot of the family's disadvantages, and then we learned more about how like God takes effect in their lives and in ours. Thank you, Tayshel. Canyon, what, what else did we do at the 30-Hour Famine? Uh, we gave away free flowers, and we did free car washes, and we did a lot of games and stuff to learn what it's like if you don't have food and how hard it is. How else did we learn a little bit about what it's like to not have food? Uh, the big thing we did. Well, we didn't eat for 30 hours. There you go. <laughs> That's the big one. <laughs> was that fun? Yeah. It actually kind of was fun. It is. If you've never done it, um, it's worth doing sometime. Um, Tayshelle, why did you personally participate in the 30-hour famine? Well, I've done it for the past, like, three years. And the first year is just because, like, oh, it's a thing we can do. But it's like after a couple times, it's like we're actually this year we raised a lot of money and it, we're actually like making a difference in some kids' lives. And like it's a way to connect with like the community and within the youth group and like with God. Yeah. Thank you, Tayshelle. Cannon, why did you personally do it? Well, when I first heard about it, I was really excited because I thought that's cool. We're going to go 30 hours without eating. It's going to be fun. And then <laughs> and I then love that that's your first thought about it. <laughs> and then I realized it's like to help raise awareness for people around the world. And it's really hard if you don't have food and you can't really find anything to eat. And people have to go more than 30 hours without eating all the time. And when they do get to eat, they don't have a giant meal like we did at the end. They just get a little bit. Yeah. Um, Kenyon, you mentioned about the free flowers that we gave around this area and the free car washes. And we didn't, some people tried to give donations for those, but we didn't receive any for that part because we wanted to practice just doing something for someone with no potential ulterior motive at all. Um, what, was, what was that like? What were people's responses to just giving? Well, when we were giving flowers, a lot of them thought there was a catch or it was a joke because nobody ever goes around giving away free flowers. <laughs> and some people thought that they didn't even answer their doors because they thought that it, we were selling something. And it's, it's sort of sad how some people didn't believe that they were free because people don't do stuff like that that often. And yeah, a lot of people tried to give donations, but we didn't accept them. And thank you, Canyon. Tayshelle, what um, what was that part like for you? Well, I was doing the car wash, and there was this one lady, and she like kept trying to give us money, and she looked like shocked when we kept saying no, we don't want any donations or anything, and she looked surprised to be like that we're genuinely giving her something without wanting anything in return. Yeah, Canyon mentioned about the doors. When they first started going around, um, we were purposeful to not say that we were from Celebration Center for this part of the event because we, again, just 
the purpose wasn't to bring any kind of notoriety or anything. But we started out initially by saying, we're doing this event to raise uh, some resources and awareness about hunger around the world. And what the group discovered who did that, I wasn't in that group, is that the door would get shut very quickly because they thought that they were asking for money. So they switched their whole tactic and they just started out with, we have free flowers. Would you like any? <laughs> uh, and then it worked much better after that point. Okay, so last question. Um, Taisha, I'll start with you because you have the microphone. How will you be different from the 30 Hour Famine? Well, I, I like appreciate what I have a lot more and like know that I have all this privilege and I shouldn't feel guilty about having it, but I should like want to give what I have to those who don't. Yeah, that's awesome what she said right there. You can go ahead and pass it to Canyon and you guys can clap for that. Um, one of the games we did, they had cards, and the cards represented resources, and there were different rounds to this game, and they were trying to collect cards, and different natural disasters happened, and they lost resources and various things. It was purposefully unfair to just realize that the reality of that around the world, but the final round, instead of disasters, we did social injustice, where different groups of people had to give cards away just because of something they couldn't change about themselves. Um, and we tied it in with, again, the goal is not to feel bad. You shouldn't feel bad. Uh, for being a United States citizen and the privilege that comes with that. It's what you do with that privilege and how you help resource others and release them that becomes critical. So thank you for pulling that out, Tayshelle. Canyon, how will you be different from the 30-hour family? Well, I'll be different because, well, sometimes I get sad because I lose a sports game or something, and then I now I realize some people can't even pay to stay alive, and it's really sad because... We're all just sad because of little things that happen, but they can't even pay for food. And that's something we get, and we need to be more thankful about it. Yeah, it changes your perspective. You guys can clap for Canyon as well. Thank you guys very much. Um, last year when we did the 30-hour famine, we raised, I think, $800, but Allie posted something. My wife, Allie, posted something on Facebook and raised, like, 400 of that, I think. This year, we raised around 1,400. I posted something on Facebook and made a couple hundred, and the teenagers raised 1,200 of that themselves. So that was really, really exciting. So thank you, guys. Pastor Mike. <sighs> All right, I'm done. I'm wrecked. So here's the big thought I had from what Canyon just shared, is sometimes my biggest struggle in life is trying to lose some weight, to use my resource less on myself and here we are realizing just the uh i mean i'll pay money more money to go to a place that will help me lose weight and so many not able even to stay alive so thank you um yeah i don't know hopefully you guys have enjoyed this I, like i said we've changed it up a little bit today but i really wanted us to hear what this parable is when it's in action and in our lives. So I'm gonna take us through the rest of the story and then we'll close in just a few minutes. Um, I'm, again, I'm in John chapter, uh, uh, Luke chapter 10, sorry. Um, beginning of verse 30, uh, Jesus begins to tell this story. And he says, in reply, remember the lawyer's been lawyering him and now says, well, who's my neighbor? And in reply, Jesus says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. Now, you have to remember, historically, um, this was a very dangerous path. Uh, there's about a 3,000-foot decline on this about 19-mile, 17-mile road, and so it goes like this. When you're going down the path, it's a steep, windy path. It was a great place for someone to waylay you. Um, it was a dangerous place to walk and go alone. And, uh, and in fact, we know just through church history for several hundred years after this, um, it was has remained a place that was just a known for thieves and to be a dangerous place. And so what's really powerful about this story, Jesus doesn't say it's like a man who was walking down a path. He said there was a man who was walking down a path. And so we actually don't know historically if he's telling a story that is true that we know or if it is a parable in the truest sense of parable, as in um, a parallel line next to a truth. But he simply says there's a man, he was walking down the path, and he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, and they went away, leaving him half dead. Now, the picture I want you to catch here is in this time, culturally, your appearance, your clothing, um, your amount of wealth, all, all those things were things that helped us know socially where you belonged. 
And in this story, we recognize an individual who has been stripped of all of the identifying marks that would clearly point out who and what kind of person this is. We simply know it's a human being, a human life. We have no social status depiction of what this is. And verse 31, it says, a priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed him by on the other side. And so too a Levite, when he came to the place, passed him by on the other side as well. You know, uh, I could go really deeply into this, but let's just suffice to say Jesus painted a picture that these humans who uh, were professional caretakers of other people could not be bothered in this instance uh, to go out of their way and reach out to this person. Now, there's an opportunity this person could have been dead, um, and without being clear of that, it could have been, it could have cost, I may have become ceremonially unclean if I was a priest and I encountered a dead body. So, so you know, there was some ancillary cost to the potential of investigating this, but it's clear that Jesus wants to depict a measure of shame that people who say uh, outwardly that they care and are compassionate couldn't be bothered to actually be caring and compassionate in this moment. And Jesus is painting this picture for this man. He's talking about who's my neighbor. In verse 33, he says, But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. Let's hold there just a second. There's so many layers to this story. The nature of a Samaritan, um, we could dive into that, but we'll get lost in that. Let's uh, simply say it was someone who ethnically was of a mixed heritage background who someone like this lawyer would have thought was clearly beneath them. And for Jesus to say this individual who you ethnically, socially, relationally think of as less honorable than yourself, less valuable than yourself, sees this person and takes pity. Now, I want to look at this word pity for just a second here, because the word there, I wanted to say it for you in the Greek, but it has about five syllables, and it, it I can't say it. I try it over and over again. And since I can't make my mouth make the words, I'll just tell you what it implies. It implies he had a yearning in his bowels, right? Basically, it struck him in the gut. The pity there went like, you ever see something and, and your gut just turns? It's not pity in my head like a hypothetical. It's like a weight in my gut like, oh, no, what has happened here? Jesus says this man sees this situation and it strikes him in the gut. It strikes him in the gut. He was moved to compassion. Now, look at what he does. Verse 34 it says, he went to him. He bandaged his wounds. He poured on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins. We know these to be worth at least a day's wages. And gave them to the innkeeper and said, look after him. And when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. Now, this is pretty powerful. I, I, as I was studying this, I, I love this parable. I go here often. You'll probably hear me talk about it at least once a year if you hang around. But uh, here's what really struck me this time through. Not only did he invest initially at his own expense to take care of someone who here was no potential ancillary return on that investment, not only did he do that, but he followed up again to make sure that there was no chance that an outstanding debt would remain. That level of compassion is pretty heavy. To come back, not to just say, hey, let me help you out, but to come back and say, hey, did this guy make a mess? Is there anything else I can do to take care of? I don't want you to turn away people who look like this later because of the damage that they did. I'll take care of this for you. Wow. Verse 36, he says, so which of these three do you think was the neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Remember, he's going to outlawyer the lawyer here. He says, you asked me the wrong question, so I'll give you the answer you don't want. All right? You could ask me the right question, and I'll give you the answer you needed, but you asked me the wrong question, so I'm going to give you the answer you don't want. Who do you think was the neighbor to this guy? Now, there's no way he could say it was the priest or the Levite, and he's left with only one other option. He says, well, the man, the man who had mercy on him, the man who gave to him. And then Jesus told him, well, go and do likewise. 
Now, the story ends there. It changes gears, and we see the next picture of what happens here. So we never see the man ask the question. I I told you, when you miss a chance to ask a great question, you just, man. The great question would have been, how do I go and do likewise? How do I do it? He didn't ask that. He is left with a picture of a perfect love, a self-sacrificing love, a love that could be inconvenienced. And he said, deuces, I'm out. Like That, that was enough information, Jesus. I don't want to have to process how to actually do that. So, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help us process it a little bit here, and then, then we're going to wrap things up. But I, I just am struck by that thing that is the how. As I was studying this, a couple things came out and were great. One of the things that came out that I thought was incredible was that because what Jesus has called this guy to do, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength perfectly, love your neighbor perfectly, is something that cannot be done on our own. What Jesus has really called him to is to a partnership with him so that he could accomplish those things. The reality is, though Jesus is not literally saying in the story that he's the good Samaritan, he's telling a story. The reality is the only person who's lived on earth and effectively done what the good Samaritan did, who came across somebody who was naked, beaten, lost everything of value and said, no, you have value. Let me bring value to you. Let me restore value to you at my own expense, at my own cost. Let me restore to you what's been taken. Not only that, I will cover your future debts as well. The only person who accomplished that was Jesus. So though I like to put myself in the scenario of the Good Samaritan and hope I could somehow hit that mark, I know that mark is higher than I can ever hit. It's higher than you can ever hit. And so let's take the pressure off just a little bit out of that tire and realize that Jesus is the person who came and accomplished that. So our job is to partner and be like him. He did happen to mention that we do the things that he has done. But Jesus is the one that we look at and say, that's how that happens. Honestly, if I'm going to identify with anyone in the story, I'm probably going to identify with the guy on the side of the road, right? The guy who's in incredible need of someone's love and compassion. So let's remove the pressure a little bit and recognize that the way that we do it is we partner with Jesus. So how do we do it? I'm going to give you just a, a couple of key things, and then we're, we're going to wrap up. One is this. There is a, a, an expression um, uh, uh, a pastor said once that has always stuck with me, and I think that it's just so easy to miss this. Sometimes we get lost feeling like it's overwhelming to do all the things that we see that are out there, and so we do nothing. The answer is not to do nothing. The answer is to do something, even if we can't do everything. And the way I heard it expressed best was do for someone what you wish you could do for everyone. You may not be able to do it for everyone. You may not be able to stop and feed every person that you come across. You may not be able to get involved in every cause that you see. You may not be able to uh, uh, step into every opportunity. Uh, You're human. Jesus is the only one that could do all of that. But with Jesus, you can do something for someone. The permission is never given to absolutely remove all sense of that. So we do for someone what we wish we could do for everyone. Here's the problem, though, is we get fatigued and worn out and feel like we have no more Lego pegs and we can't do anything. So my question is, okay, that's cool. Step on the other side when, when, when necessary. But when the yearning in your bowels hits... When something strikes you in the gut, do you have margin and willingness to partner with Jesus to do that thing? Are you willing to do that thing? Paul says it this way in Galatians chapter 6. He says in uh, verse 9, he says, Don't become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we'll reap a harvest if we don't give up. Therefore, I love this in verse 10. He doesn't say, therefore, every moment of your life, Go out there and be a good Samaritan. Therefore, as you have opportunity, there's not always a guy on the side of the road that you need help every second of your life. And you don't have to drive around just looking, picking up guys. No one's calling you to that kind of pressure. That's Jesus's job, okay? Take the, that, you know what, that's, that's like a tire. You're like letting the pressure out. I'm trying to let the pressure off a little bit, okay? I don't want the pressure to be this thing that just breaks us. What I want is for it to inspire us and lift us to do what Jesus 
did when the opportunity arises. When you're driving by and all of a sudden something hits you in your bowels. And you're like, oh, I could help there. When you hear about a need, when that hundredth email from the school comes out and they're looking for a volunteer for a thing and you're like, oh, I know I could do this one. I don't want to do the other 99, but this one I can do. When, when the community has an event going on and you're thinking, man, that's something I would rally. I would do that. Oh, it's in my guts. As you have opportunity, let's do good to all people especially those who belong in the family of believers. See, I love, I love verse 11. I took us a little verse longer than we normally go because Paul's like, see what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. He's saying, I can't spell this out for you any bigger. When you have opportunity to do what Jesus called you to do, then do it. And don't get weary. Don't get gassed. Don't go, well, the return isn't gonna match the investment. That's not what it's about. It's about the opportunity that you have when Jesus puts it in your gut and you step up and you do it. So I'm going to bring the, uh, the elders up and we're going to get ready to take communion. And I'm going to challenge us a little bit here to think differently. Because here was my wrestling match all week as I pressed into this. It's very easy to learn about this. It's difficult to step into this kind of life. But when the people of God do this, it literally changes things. It changes neighborhoods. It changes communities. It changes bodies of believers. It changes things. You watch a group of 12 committed guys, 11 committed guys. They added another 12th guy. No one talks about him. Matthias, he gets ripped off. Anyways, they... <laughs> They decided to actually do this. And they couldn't help everybody. But they helped as they had opportunity to do it. They loved as they had opportunity to do it. They cared for the one as they had opportunity to do it. And they didn't feel some kind of guilt or shame. They just moved forward doing what they were called to do all the time. And it changed the world. We're here today because they believed that this would work. So I'm going to invite the elders. Would you begin to just pass out the elements? And, and uh, as they're passing those out... I want to talk a little bit about communion from, from a different perspective. We often talk about communion in terms of uh, what Jesus accomplished on the cross, and we should. We absolutely should. He said, my body, this is my blood, this is what I accomplished on the cross. But when they took that first communion, they didn't have a picture of the cross yet. They didn't get it. Like, the pieces didn't come together. They're in the upper room, and Jesus is saying, this is my body, which is for you. This is my blood, which is for, for you. And do this as often as you do in remembrance of me. What did they have to remember? At that point, they had to remember the way he loved, the way he served, the way he moved through the crowds, the way he cared for the unlovable, the way he broke social and, and, uh, and, and sociological structures to go to people who were in need to meet them where they were at, the way he broke all of the stereotypes in order to love and to serve. And that's the picture they had in that upper room when he said, as you remember me, remember me. Now the cross comes into play and it's amazing and it's an absolute picture of the perfection of what Jesus accomplished. But communion is about also remembering how we live, not just how he died and rose again. And so as the elements are coming out, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I wanna stir something in you guys and you can ignore me and shut me down, that's fine. I just have the microphone so I'm gonna take advantage of this moment. Here's the deal. It is May or April the 10th, right? I told you I love a good story. I am hungry for stories of us as a body, of you guys being like Jesus in this town. And I was very intentional. I don't mean being like Jesus in this building, okay? Some of you, I, I, you have gone above and beyond and you are like Jesus in this building all the time and all of you should, and I, I care about that, that's amazing. I mean just in this town. I want to hear stories of I had an opportunity to serve. I really didn't want to do it, but I stepped up and I did it. And look at what Jesus did. I saw a need and I didn't know how to do it. So I just tried to help one. And, it, and this is what God did. I, 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 was, I didn't have any room and I couldn't figure out how to do it. But I saw this need and I just, I, I, it hit me in my bowels. And I had to do something. I am craving that from you guys. I want to hear your stories. I want to know what it looks like when we do our mission, when we 
passionately, when we're disciples who passionately represent Jesus in our community. Well, who's my neighbor? I don't know who your neighbor is. It's the guy you see. It's the opportunity you see. I can't tell you who your neighbor is any more directly than Jesus did. It's the thing you see that stirs you to take action. So I would love to know who your neighbors are. Now, they may be in proximity. They may be like, you know, hey, you may just go and rake some leaves. I've heard, I heard some stories from folks looking for just help and yard work for, for widows and folks like that that just need some support. Maybe that's what it is. I'm not sure what it is. But I really want to hear some stories. So we're going to take communion. And after we take communion and remember what Jesus did for us, I'm, uh, here it is. I, I'm going to have this up on the screen. And if you don't know that email address, then take a picture of it with your phone or type it into your phone after communion. Come on, take communion right now. Put your phone away. Um, after, after we're done with communion, I want you to make sure you get that information. And here's what I want you to do. I just want you to flood that inbox with stories. Now, you're like, I don't like writing stories. Okay, write me a sentence. I saw an opportunity and I did this. Just give it to me, whatever it is. And I want to compile those stories. I want that to begin to to communicate with the rest of the body what we're doing in our community, that we're living this. I want some teeth in that. I want to hear it. I want to know it. I want to see it. I want to celebrate it with you. I want to just experience it with you. And I want to see what it looks like in this community when we stop just going to church and we are the church. We bring it everywhere we go. Is that fair? All right. Would you take, um, take those elements and my first invitation for you is to just take a moment and remember what Jesus did for you. He says, when you do this, this is about remembering. Now I'm going to ask you to have some guts here. Because I don't know if you've ever read the Bible. There's some amazing stories in there. Some of the craziest ones are when someone tells God they're going to do something, and then they don't do it, and what happens? I'm not trying to put some fear in you. I'm just saying it's the word. So, so I would love to challenge you, before we take communion, to simply invite Jesus to partner with you as you're going through your day and to stir up opportunities for you to be like him. Now, I'm not saying every opportunity, that's like you're like a hunting for every single possible. I'm saying when you have the opportunity, when it's there, when it hits you in your guts, I'm asking you to have the courage to say, God, help me to say yes when it strikes me in the gut so that I'll do it. That's between you and the Lord. Between you and me, I would love for you to have the guts to take this down and tell me the story about it because I want those stories. There's power in our stories. Would you hold the uh, wafer? And If you're visiting with us, we don't believe you have to be a member. You simply have to want to remember what Jesus did. And he invites us to do this. So hold that wafer and we're going to pray. Jesus, thanks for the example that your life set for us. You said when we take the bread to just remember. So we remember. We remember the way you love. We remember how you had compassion. We remember how you forgave. We remember how you didn't judge people in their worst moments but believed in what they could be. You said go from this place and be different. So we want to do that. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, you can take and eat that. When it came to the juice, you said this is the new covenant. Covenants were about promises and commitments. He said, this is the new covenant in my blood. So my challenge is that we would just make a response to that covenant of what you did by saying, we'll be like you. We'll do our best. Are we going to be able to do it perfectly? No. The how question is the powerful question. The how is that you give us what we need to do it. You provide you meet the in-between pieces that we don't know how to manage. That's the how. So I pray as we take this, we would just have the courage to trust you. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name.
Amen. You can take a drink. The last thing I just wanted to direct you guys to as we close, Revelations 12, 11. When John sees the end of all time, he looks at the saints and he watches this victory that happens, the people of God over the mechanisms of the enemy. And he says there's two compelling things that they brought to the fight. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb, what Jesus does, and by the word of the testimony. Testimony is sharing the story. That's why I want your stories. They're one of the most powerful weapons we have to defeat the enemy on earth is sharing our stories. So I'm asking, pleading, share with me your stories. Tell me how you had opportunity to be what Jesus called us to be, how you stepped into it. I want, the, mm, I want you to feel it because it's good to feel it. And let's just go meet Jesus. Can we do that together? Would you stand?